Good evening. My name is Leopoldo Sanchez, and I am the director of the Center for Hispanic Studies here at Concordia Seminary. I would like to welcome you to our seventh annual lecture in Hispanic Latino Theology and Missions. Tonight's lecture officially kicks off a series of fellowship and publication events that the Center for Hispanic Studies is planning to sponsor throughout the year to celebrate its 25th anniversary. What a blessing for our Lutheran Church. 25 years. Think about this for a moment. Through thick and thin, 25 years of ongoing theological formation in the Spanish language among Latinos in the United States. But none of this happens without the work of a host of people who have invested in the value of theological formation for our Hispanic communities. So to all of our students and to all of our faculty, past and present, both of the former Hispanic Institute of Theology and the current Center for Hispanic Studies, as well as to all our regional coordinators and partners in Hispanic theological formation throughout the U.S. We wish you a happy 25th birthday. So, feliz cumpleaños. And now on to our main event. We are thrilled to have Reverend Professor Gregory Klutz in our midst. He is actually our first LCMS guest speaker for the annual lecture. The purpose of the lecture is to raise awareness and educate the seminary community and the general public on issues that affect Latino communities and on the contributions of Latinos and others to the shape of the church's task in such communities. Past lectures have covered topics such as the spirituality of immigration, the dynamics of working in the borderlands, Pauline pastoral leadership in Latino perspective, the dynamics of Lutheran and Latino identities, the contribution of Latino ethics to ecumenical dialogue, and the sociology of second and third generation Hispanics in the United States. These lectures are all available on Concordia's iTunes University Center for Hispanic Studies section. And they will also be made available uh, at the center's uh, website. This year, Professor Klotz will be speaking to us on the topic dealing with culture in theological formation. This is a very timely topic in light of our consideration of the intersection of theology and culture, which we just reflected on at our third multi-ethnic symposium here at the seminary. But it's also a timely topic because Concordia Seminary and other institutions are dealing with questions of curriculum review in a United States that, as we all know, is becoming increasingly diverse in his ethnocultural makeup. Professor Klotz's background more than qualifies him to engage our topic tonight. He served as a missionary to Latin America for 20 years, including work as church planter 
in Panama and as coordinator of theological studies in Venezuela and Guatemala. He has also contributed, contributed as a professor of missiology at our sister seminary in Fort Wayne, teaching in areas such as world religions and living culture and issues of theological contextualization in the mission field. He is also a PhD candidate in the field of folklore and ethnomusicology at Indiana University, where he is pursuing the phenomenological study of funeral music in Guatemalan Holy Week processions. So without, without further ado, please help me welcome Professor Gregory Klotz. Thank you, Leo, and thank you uh, for having invited me this evening to be with you. Uh, my paper is going to focus on dealing with culture and theological formation. Particularly, it's going to be a paper on my experience as, as a missionary in Latin America, reflecting on issues in communicating the gospel effectively for pastoral formation, theological formation. Talking about the theme of a broad theological or missiological framework for the preparation of leaders in a cross-cultural setting cannot be done in 45-minute time, much less than in a ministry of 45 years. Nevertheless, the theme, the topic, and necessity for this discussion are paramount to the continuance of the movement of the church in today's multicultural context. Perhaps the most perplexing part is where to begin the discussion. There is so much to say, and we cannot go into depth on every issue. So I would therefore like to highlight certain basic concepts that feed into thinking about theological formation cross-culturally. We will play a little with definitions and theories, but focus on practice. I will give you some problems to work on as well. I would like to begin with a look at the term culture and we will move toward a framework that may help in theological formation. Along the way, I will cite examples from my own ministry as a missionary in Latin America and pose what I encountered as problems on the field for you to solve. I do this because for me, education is a problematizing of real life situations. So that we will do that and dialogue about what we know to be true and what we have not considered perhaps possibly feasible in an educational setting. In many ways, this paper is an intersubjective dialogue between myself before going onto the field in Latin America and after returning. My hope is that this paper will stimulate you to further investigation, reflect, and creatively problem solve, solve on how theological formation can better take place with cultural knowledge as a friend and not an obstacle. There is no one set definition for culture. Some definitions describe culture as that which holds communities or groups together in which communicative media is used to describe these experiences at whose root is a particular worldview or central religious core value. Looking at culture this way, converts culture into an object for study and then 
fragments it into segments or compartments. In these definitions, it is assumed that the categories are somewhat universal from culture to culture, and that there are various cultural media or forms that build off a core value within the community. Historically, and as a result of colonialism, these definitions offered early research as a way of categorizing cultural meaning into predefined categories, aligning meaning with their own understanding. Other definitions of culture focus on units within culture that serve as building blocks in small uh, social settings and expand to larger, complex social settings. Not saying that these are right or wrong. It is simply how researchers have attempted to get a handle on the problem of what's different from one culture to another. But in some ways, scholars have contributed in, to their own problem of studying culture by converting culture into an object to be studied instead of a process to be observed in human interaction. If I could, I would avoid it altogether, but since dealing with culture and theological formation is the overall theme this evening, it's impossible to skirt the issue. So I would like to take some time and present the question, how should we approach talking about culture and what should we do about it in the area of theological formation? This means we observe practice, praxis of people in action communicating about their real world instead of looking at culture as an object. And the first thing that we want to do is change our viewpoint of the topic. The term culture originated in the Western world, and like so many things in the West, it was made an object of study, as I've said before. As an object, it becomes dehumanized and analyzed as something independent or taken out of its context. That is, it lost its human element if we look at it as an object. We cannot deal with culture as an object simply because we're dealing with human beings in the area of theological formation who experience the world differently, who communicate their world experience differently to others, and along the same time live in a social context in which their words and objects that they use to communicate carry varying degrees of meaningful experience across numerous domains of meaning that stretch far beyond the value of a definition of a word and have everything to do with a context in society. It should be noted that we learn here that although there are words or lexemes that contain meaning, it's the social context that is actually the genesis of the meaning of words as, it's, as signs in communication. So instead of offering yet another definition, I would like to take the perspective of a descriptive exercise of culture, looking at it in a behavioral way. In other words, what actually goes on when communicating. This is more beneficial simply because anthropology is a behavioral science. It studies how people behave. Culture is a phenomenon and the product of the interrelationship between people. So we will begin there, and I will call it a phenomenological view of culture. As humans, we first of all interact with the natural world around us. As we experience this world, we organize our perceptions and experiences into meaningful experiences individually for ourselves, but also with a social community by communicating our experiences with the real world 
to others within that same social setting. The meaning is therefore um, is, is classified as knowledge. We know something to be true as we experience the world. It has meaning for me, and as we communicate it, it has meaning for the community. The words that I choose are selected from what I have heard others use in similar instances. Words which already have a lexical value, but now take on a certain nuance within the description of something that has happened as real in the social context. When we go to another culture and experience communication, we sometimes find a breakdown in how to communicate meaningfully what we experience in that real world. And I know some of you are thinking that there is sometimes a breakdown in communication even between me and my wife. That's not the same type of breakdown in communication. Wouldn't necessarily say that it's cultural, but it is one of using words with attached meanings and in the environment of another person's life may carry a different meaning. So we still go about when we go into another culture, what word do I choose to communicate or talk? What is the context that I'm using it in? What social reality is associated with the choice of word that I use? How can I describe my experience if I don't know the words to do so? Let's look at the human experience and show how this works. We will use example of a language as this is the most basic form in communication. And it should be noted that all of us communicate and go about this naturally. We don't sit there and pick it apart like we're doing here. We're totally unconscious of what's going on when we do it. Let's say I experience something in my life. Let's make it simplistic. I want to tell you about it, but how? I have words that I choose from based on how you or others have described similar experiences in the past, and I assess that you probably know these experiences and words in that context. So I begin, I saw a car hit another car. Now as you sort through the meaning of car as a train car or a toy car and other domains of what car could possibly be, you finally arrive at the motor car because of the context. Also when I say hit another car, you could interpret it as slapping another car, but since it's in this context, you know that that didn't take place. One car hit another car. We share a similar context, a similar experience, which means we share knowledge of the situation through experience and sharing. <coughs> it is our reality. You may have additional questions which come from your experiences of previously related accidents that you've seen. And so you may ask, was anyone hurt? Or how many cars were involved? All of these seek to define or refine the experience for further meaningful communication. As you can see, communication is the found, foundational element in sharing knowledge within a reality of the world, and more importantly, how communication takes place. Now, I could have said, I saw a car accident yesterday. This takes us to a second stage of how culture operates. This step is codification or codification. By saying, I saw a car accident yesterday, I have used a highly codified or condensed term 
an example of a whole series of actions that took place in my social context. This codification is used because we know what the individual parts mean when we communicate and say that phrase. There is no need to say more. I saw a car accident. I have not described step by step what happened, but merely have, term have termed that description as an accident. Now, I could say, I had an accident the other day, and you would assume that it's a car accident, based on the context. If your two-year-old son came up to you and said, Daddy, I had an accident, automatically, because of the context, it's, you're not going to assume that it's a car accident, but another type of accident. So accident being a word, given the context, gives definition to what is meant by the term. Since we are most likely from the same culture, we know where to fit the meaning of that word into an experience that we have all had or have all heard about. Communication happens like this, codification, over and over again. What we know to be commonplace within culture is codified. So I can say, well, I'm going to get ready for bed. And everybody knows what I'm talking about. I don't have to say, I'm going to take off and put on an iron, I am not going to put on an iron shirt, and I'm not going to put on a suit, and I'm not going to put on a tie or shine my shoes and put on makeup or tie my gym shoes. At least everyone in my same social context knows that I'm not going to do these things. They know what I mean. Equally, since it is commonplace that we agree upon what takes place, I don't need to say, well, I am going to walk upstairs, turn down my bed, slip into my pajamas, go to the bathroom, brush my teeth, go back to the bed, get in, say prayers, close my eyes, open my eyes, set my alarm because I forgot to, sigh at how little hours of sleep I am going to get, and then close my eyes again and sleep. Codification and communication allows me to say simply, I'm going to bed. This is knowledge, socially constructed, as we know all of the words within the context. But given another social community, it might mean going to bed, mean locking the doors, or move the couch to the corner of the room and put a mat out in the center of the floor. It also might mean, okay everybody, time to leave. What I have described within verbal communication also is true of any type of media in culture. For example, sound or objects, even colors or any other forms of aesthetics. Even voice intonation. I use an example in my Spanish classroom at Taylor University to show how language communicates beyond simple definitions of words. The lexemes in this example are the same, but the meaning is different because of the intonation of speech and aesthetic of speech. The difference, what did you get your mother for Christmas? Or, what did you get your mother for Christmas? Same words, different aesthetic. Communicate two different things. So the same can happen with smells in context, sounds, objects. Thus, through language and media of communication, we know and have organized the world around us into patterns 
objects, institutions, groups that have meaning for us. This includes churches, seminaries, theological formation, students, teachers, pastors, on and on and on. In our own social community, everything that surrounds us has meaning. We are not aware of things that do not have meaning for us. As well, in another culture, we are not aware of the meaning of all of our surroundings, but it's there. We do not perceive it because it is a meaningless organization, social setting, words, or other type of social organization or structure. <clears throat> Let me illustrate that briefly for you. This is the world of church, which has meaning for me. I will now be explicit and put quotation marks around those terms which are codified, meaning that they are words that carry a lot of baggage and shortened form in one word contains a whole lot of extra information. Example, as a Lutheran Christian, I was born and raised in a church. I feel like Chris Farley on uh, Brush My Teeth. Okay. As a Lutheran Christian, I was born and raised in a church that had a liturgical structure. All congregations had their own buildings, which were A-framed. There was a president of a congregation. There were elders. There was a ladies' guild, there was a Sunday school for children, and there was an adult Bible study, etc., etc. These are structures that make up our organization, and I don't mean organization in a business sense, but our grouping of meaning for the American Lutheran Christianity, as well as other denominations. It is easy to understand how the image of the church, as it exists in this form, could be seen as a whole, codified Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Although there are various components that make up the congregation and denominations in the United States, we lose sight of the fragments or individual aspects of those, and we look at the whole, sort of like saying the forest and the trees. To understand all the elements that make up the meaning of something codified like LCMS, we could do an exercise in deconstruction and unpack the historical, real-life social context in which all of these took on codified meaning, but let's not. As an LCMS pastor, this is my interaction with the religious world around me. It provided the context for my theological training. It was and is an integral part of my religious world. Now, as a missionary, I go overseas with this view of the church in my head. Although I go as a product of seminary education and understand the doctrines of historical church and denominational differences, I have not been taught the semiotics of culture or the skill of communications or the artful use of symbols and meaning in communicating the gospel. Yes, I have been taught to preach, but this too is a communicative form which is codified in the social world in a social context as public speaking in a determined place. 
it is an acceptable way, given the setting that you're in. So I enter into Latin America with this idea of church and theology. I set up an organizational structure that depicts denomination. I begin having Bible studies in homes. I begin to form a group with a church president, an offering deposited in a bank, preaching, etc. My downfall is not that the church takes this shape. My downfall is my ignorance in assuming that these shapes or social forms have the same meaning in that social context of which I am not a part. And it was along these lines that I met my first awakening along the road to an understanding of theological formation that could be defined by a free exchange of dialogue between two social realities. One in which I lived out my faith and gave substance to my faith, and the other, the reality in which this gospel message would seek expression in a totally different culture. Hi, I'm a Lutheran missionary. I have come to bring you Christ. Well, people saw me, what I did, what I had, how I lived, my salary, my family, I drove a nice car, I had food on my table. I am the Lutheran church. So, do you want to become a Lutheran? Yeah. I am not alone in my idea of church. When I went, or when I arrived in David, in Panama, the Lutheran mission in the United States, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, Board for Mission Services, B-O-R-E-D, no, B-O-A-R-D, another lexical term, had already purchased a house where I was to live. It was in the middle of town, and it was large. Definitely upper-class colonial. It was purchased with the plan that this was where the congregation of David Chiriki would meet. The house was to be in mission hands until I left, at which time it was going to be turned over to the church. After a few years, when I understood what the purpose behind the purchase of the property was, I wanted to move out. The reason was because there were several Bible study groups meeting, and the possibility that there were several small churches around the city seemed to be more homogenous than just one meeting place. As well, the cost to maintain a large structure in a middle-class area would have been prohibitive for lower-class people meeting in my groups. Now, let's raise the questions that cause you to think about the structure of your own congregation or church. What is the history of its formation? Is history in the social context? What is wrong with meeting in houses? Is the purchase of a property necessary? Is a legal status as a church in the country a necessity? How would they envision the church organization in their social setting? What about the ministerial office? the way education takes place, the substance of that education. All structures have meaning and purpose within the social context and were once established through real life issues. Here on the mission field, there is no history and no instance of correctness or incorrectness. There is no meaning other than, I am the Lutheran church. And to be Lutheran is to be like the missionary. We really don't know that we communicate this until we reflect on it 
in another social context and wrestle with why I am not understood the way I want to be understood or question the organization of their structured reality, structured organizations, leadership qualities. Even if we know the language a bit, we most likely are absent from the social context. That was a concrete example which hopefully caused you to think about implicit meaning behind things that are codified within culture in the case of our church. Now I'm going to tell a few stories of other experiences I had in communication and diversity of social contexts while on the mission field. I tell these to you in a raw form with no thought behind them other than leading you a bit with information surrounding them, putting them in a context for you. Each of these examples presents an issue of dealing with cultural communication as I just have somewhat simplistically presented. For each of these, I want you to think about what we have said, maybe take some notes, and then reflect on how you would solve the problem that I was experiencing. Or at least try and determine what the crux of the problem was. Example one, burning off the fields. In a rural Bible study in Panama, we were studying First Peter and the refining of gold to make it pure. I had never seen gold refined before, but I understood that firing something in an oven could possibly make it sturdier or purer, such as pottery, or I could easily see that it was something similar to silver smelting, as I had seen before. The group of people I was working with was mostly tobacco and sugarcane farmers. Most had a sixth grade primary level education. Most of them were probably looking at the Bible for the very first time if they could read it all. Here was my problem. I recognized that they did not know what the purification process for gold was. So I chose something from their everyday lives. Before the safra or sugarcane harvest, the fields were burned to get rid of all the rats and other critters, as well as burn up the weeds. The sugarcane was then good to harvest. They purified the fields in one sense of the word. So I use this as an analogy not only for purification, but also for the parable of the wheat and the weeds. Example two, the second commandment. Here was my first exposure in theological education, actually. I established Bible studies in houses in David Chiriqui, Panama, and I also had groups in rural farm areas. In my Bible studies, I used a mix of Bible studies on justification by faith, as well as studies from Luther's small catechism. My first group was a group in a rural mountain area. We met in their living room Wednesday afternoons and studied the catechism. And every one of them had a catechism, and we used that together with scripture. Everyone knew the answers to the questions. There came the time that, I and, uh, that our family left for a two-month furlough to the United States. And when I returned, I learned that the estranged husband of one of the female members had been assassinated by Machete. I also learned that the burial was that very same day that we returned. I learned that the wife, Rosa, was in the hospital in Concepcion, so I went there. She was delirious, and the family was around her bed. She did not go to the funeral because of her condition. As I stood there, somewhat in the rear, um, behind her, one of her brothers, I heard her say, 
Did you put a spoon on his chest? And then, did you tie his thumbs together? Why, I asked myself, why would she ask that? So I asked her brother, who said, well, the spoon is placed there so that whoever it was that killed him would die of hunger. And the thumbs were tied together so that whoever it was who killed him was bound and could not flee or leave the country. Well, needless to say, I was perplexed. Here was a family that looked forward to Bible studies every Wednesday afternoon, who had been through the catechism, and they knew the answers, yet they also relied on witchcraft or superstition. What went wrong? I couldn't figure it out. I put this on the back burner for thinking, and I didn't address the issue immediately. What was the problem? The bap example three, the baptism bracelet. One time I was getting ready for a baptism. The woman had come to me asking me to baptize the child, and she was willing to go through classes in preparation for that baptism. So we looked at scripture passages related to baptism, where we talked about the necessity of continuing to come to church so that the child could be brought up in Christian teaching. We also discussed the fact that this child now bore the name of his Savior, and that he now belonged to him. God would continue to protect and defend him always as salvation was brought to this child through baptism. In getting ready for, one, for the baptism, the mother came up with the child. Among the clothing items of regalia that the child wore was a piece of red woolen thread tied around his wrist. I did not baptize the child that day. What happened? What went wrong with the teaching that I gave? What was not understood? Example four, you're too cute. When I arrived in Panama, the now sainted Reverend Merrill Wettstein took me around to houses where he had formerly conducted Bible studies or took me to families that he knew were interested in possibly hosting a Bible study in their homes. Some of these families, including the one from this story, I never saw again. We entered into this house and sat down on the couch. I remember everyone being quite talkative. Pastor Merrill was joking with the people as only he good, could do in his Portuguese-laden Spanish. Suddenly, the grandma of the family appeared coming out of her bedroom. She immediately came over to where I was on the couch and sat down beside me. She kept touching my arm and saying that I was so handsome and that she had a very strong eye. And, and in the course of her touching my arm, she said, you are so handsome and you don't have something red on. Why don't you wear something red? And at that point, I answered her. What was the problem and what did I say? Example five. I do believe in elves. I do, I do, I do believe in elves. At the Lutheran Center in Antigua, Guatemala, where I trained pastors of the Guatemala National Church, there were two people, or two groups of students. One was Mayan Indian, and the other was Ladino, a mix of Spanish and Indian blood. The group studied separately because of cultural and educational differences. The Mayan Indian group studied at an academic level of around sixth grade elementary. On this particular occasion, the Mayan group was studying the work of the Holy Spirit 
and spirits and angels and that sort. After class, we broke for lunch and then kept talking as we normally did. In the course of the conversation, the topic went to Guatemalan folklore, folklore as a category in my own mind, and we began talking about the tzitzimiti, or duende, which in Guatemalan folklore is a little sprite or leprechaun or elf that comes and at night and ties girls' hair into knots while they sleep. And while talking about it, one of the pastors who is highly respected and a very wise man said that one day he was sitting talking with a group of elders in the community when all of a sudden this duende or elf came over to him and jumped on his shoulder and just sat there. None of the other pastors looked at him or reacted in astonishment or disbelief, which is something that I wanted to see if it happened. Wow, what was I to think? Need this be addressed? What did I not know or experience in this community related with spirits? What happened to communication here? Suddenly, I was on the outside. Example five, goodness snakes a life. In my classes, again, at the Lutheran Center in Antigua, I had approximately eight students representing four different Mayan Indian language communities, all of whom spoke Spanish as their second language. In our classes, discussion was very practical and praxis-centered as opposed to the Ladino students whose classes were very theoretical. In Mayan Indian classes, much of our conversation revolved around correctness in ritual or observance, which was not surprising since the whole community, Mayan community, is bent on conformity and doing things correctly and achieving balance, so there is also much more dialogue around the activities of pastoral leadership, excuse me. One time that the group was in studying, we got sidetracked on the very first day of class that set the whole tone for the remainder of the week, and we ended up studying something I had not even the inkling of studying. Here is how it began. Pastor Gregorio, there is a man in my congregation who has recently become a member. He was a shaman involved in Mayan magic, and he renounced that practice and was baptized and studied with me and became a member of the church, he and his whole family. But now he comes to church with marks on his leg, legs because the snakes that are on his incense burner come to life during the night and bite him. He has the marks and everything. What should we do? Everyone listened with rapt attention. Nobody doubted the validity of the event, even though they did not have congregations anywhere near the pastor's town, nor did they know the gentleman. Suddenly someone else chimes in, yes, that happened to me too. There was a devout Roman Catholic family who became Lutheran not too long ago. They took their images, saints, Mary, and maybe even Jesus, out of their homes and threw them in the river. A few days later, when they were farming in the field downriver, they found that the images had all swum ashore and were now in their fields. They weren't near the river. They were in the fields meters from the river. 
What should we do? What is going on here? And what would you do? What is the problem? What is needed? Example six, without words. <clears throat> I reflect now on an incident that begs the question, how would you train a pastor to handle the following situation regardless of context? During the guerrilla conflict in Guatemala, the elders of a well-established congregation met one night to discuss an accident, to discuss an incident. One of the members of the congregation had apparently been kidnapped either by right-wing death squads or by leftist guerrillas. His wife came to counsel, asking them to put an announcement in the newspaper saying that he was in no way involved in the Civil War conflict and asked the captors to please release him. What would you do? What could be done? In trying to address some of these issues here, let's go back a bit to our discussion in dealing with culture and how we framed it as a phenomenological view, as a constructed meaning that takes place within a social context. Knowledge and reality can be described as a social construct continually defined and redefined as to its meaning through communication and understanding of shared experiences that take place through words, the words not divorced from their social context, but through which meaningful experiences are communicated among a group of people. Words, images, symbols, art, dance, music, over time take on a cumulative or weighted significance according to the various domains of experience which they access. People sort out similar and dissimilar experiences through this defining and redefining through signs or objects and how they relate to the world in which they live. And at the end, the result is knowledge. We may have guessed from the stories and the questions that I was missing the communicative skills to define and redefine and dig deeper into the social context and the incidents that happened. In some way, the words, the teaching, the doctrine was not given a place in the social context of the community of people I was working with. What was missing in the communication as I entered into another community, if you've answered the problematic issue as one of knowing context, then you are correct. This issue of contextualization. I would now like to shift our discussion to look more deeply at context. The issue of contextualization has been made the answer to the problematic issue of trying to communicate effectively cross-culturally. Again, definitions attempt to grasp at the meaning of contextualization in order to distinguish it from syncretism. Let's look at a couple of these theories and then offer up our own working model of how contextualization takes place in order to answer the questions that I have in the example and then move towards a framework for theological formation across cultures. Missiologists such as Hesselgrave, in his book Contextualization, Meanings, Methods, and Models, understand contextualization as something which we do to the message and teaching of the gospel to make it fit into another context after analyzing 
semiotic equivalence for, from the cultural media. This type of, of reforming of a message seems to grow out of anthropologist Charles Kraft's concept of a dynamic equivalent, a lexical material or aesthetic difference in communication between cultures that carries the same meaning or fundamental objective in communication. This, of course, is based on the assumption of universal categories and meanings, that people in all cultures around the world have set universal categories within these cultures, that the meaning and the message depends on the correct cultural media attached to specific social context. It seems like a chug and plug type of solution to the problem. Others, such as Mary Knoll missionary Robert Schreider in his book, Constructing Local Theologies, um, treat contextualization as something in which the message, that is the gospel, is preexistent in the culture. Following the anonymous Christian theory, this concept of contextualization warrants no need for the separation of the message and media, and that the message of the gospel is not something that breaks into the culture with the preaching of Christ, but substantively exists in the social structure under different media forms. The job of missionaries then is to identify the substantive gospel message elements as they exist culturally, such as the Jesus motif, forgiveness motif, sacrificial motif, and qualify them as Christian according to their dynamic social equivalence to Bible teaching. Instead of an objective Jesus, it offers us a Christ figure with no incarnational substance other than an equivalent dynamic concept from within the community. Both the concept of culture and contextualization seem to be dehumanized or objectivized from the process of what happens since it appears they are studied out systematically as independent existing entities. The interactive praxis-oriented human element is removed, makes the study static as opposed to relational observance and co-elaboration for meaning in any social setting. Contextualization simply happens. It happens all the time and in all circumstances, and is ongoing. Experiences or events from one community will acquire meaning in another culture. It is called contextual if communication has taken place, and there is communion between the individuals, communication between the individuals or communities involved. It is considered syncretistic if communication has not taken place, and the message is qualitatively different in relation to the sign or media of communication and its place in the social context. But as a footnote to this, we have to ask the question, we can't discuss it here, who decides the difference between contextualization and syncretism when evaluating something within communication in another culture? whether it is authentically message-wise equivalent and shown within the culture, the new culture, 
or whether it is qualitatively different and distorts the communication. I want to focus on contextualization and not syncretism. I want to look at contextualization as a dynamic human process, one that continually takes place between members of the same community, as it does with members of different communities. In communicating, using the cultural media available to us, we constantly are expanding our knowledge base of the known world around us through dialogue. New experiences of others who seek to communicate their experience to us use new words, new concepts. We see music, new art, dance, signs, constantly changing as they need to accommodate new experiences into a pre-existing social context and community. As, again, as Dr. Jack Schultz stated yesterday morning, there is no intrinsic value of knowledge given to music, dance, art, or words apart from their social context. So as new elements or forms come in, they need to be categorized, organized from within that particular social context by the people who are experiencing them. This means that contextualization is a natural and constant process whereby the creature, we, seek communion and meaning and understanding with each other and ultimately with God. It cannot be viewed objectively or stagnantly or systematically lest it lose all of these human elements as a process. It can only be observed, tested, adapted, adopted in ongoing socialization process. Contextualization is exactly what happened in the New Testament times. And I would like to differentiate between two types of contextualization. The process of contextualization can be seen in some ways as incarnation, the word becoming flesh, <coughs> becoming incarnate in our lives, we becoming incarnate in the world of other people. By calling it so, we divert the attention from us, the preachers or the vessels of the message, and place it on the one from whom it came and is communicated, namely the Holy Spirit. We see this in Romans 10:17 when it says that the message is only known through the preaching of the gospel. And as we confess the work of the Holy Spirit in the explanation to the third article of the Creed, I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him, but that it is the Holy Spirit who has called me through the word. Holding this to be true then, the first step of contextualization is faith. As God word, God's word becomes incarnate in me. How? Well, much as a sacrament in, with, and under the form of the word preached to me. It is not intellect, it is not education, it is spiritual, capital S spiritual, Holy Spirit spiritual communication that is exclusively the power of God through the word as he has ordained it. From a missionary standpoint, as one proclaiming that word to another, I can try and choose the correct words, media, and method of communicating the gospel in another culture from the onset by attempting to learn the language and become one with that culture, an attempt to incarnate myself in that culture. I can attempt to use words, context, as carefully as possible so as not to confuse it, but ultimately, however, it is in spite of me 
that the message is heard and believed by someone in that community, as it would be true within my own community, because the first step is the process, in the process of contextualization, is the work of the Holy Spirit. But in order to, for this step to take place, there has to be an ongoing two-sided communication, not a one-sided lecture, testing, retrying, analyzing, revisiting, and it takes a lot of time. It is an ongoing process. In the Greco-Roman world at the time of Christ, all cultural media presented and used, Jesus preaches in an understandable way. He is in, with, and under the context of the people to whom he himself belongs. He chooses words that carry weight, not merely semantically or lexically, lexically, but within their social context, so that knowledge is shared about the real known world around. He speaks to the social context of people, and the Holy Spirit does his work and causes faith to be born in people. This message is received and finds its homes in the hearts of unregenerate mankind, simply because it is an intrusive, spiritual, inbreaking work of the Holy Spirit. It is a message that stands outside of the perceived, everyday, natural reality of its people's experience and against the experience to create a sacred understanding, a Holy Spirit understanding of that word, as Roman 10 says. Faith receives and applies the message of liberation and freedom to my context first. Jesus comes to me first as a sinner through forgiveness and offering restored communion with God. Now the second step of contextualization begins, which is where the fun began in the New Testament. People wanted to share this phenomenal thing with others around them. What happened to me can happen to you. How can I express to others what I have just received? How can I express my faith in this social context in which I live? Who else might share my experience and be able to find adequate words to describe this Jesus? What is it like in my known world that I could even use as an example to talk about him? Theological discussion is born, and over time, <coughs> concrete formation of systematized theology takes place. It becomes a corpus of truth over time, perhaps dictums, divorced from real-life context, language, codifications in which it was first formulated. I agree with Dr. Rutt yesterday as he said that theology was actually born out of missiology, not simply because the church had to go to other cultures and deal with problems in communication. It grew out of endless discussion on how to talk about God, how to talk about Jesus, how to talk about the Holy Spirit in a diversity of social context in reflection on what Scripture said. Contextualization in its second stage, therefore, is theologizing. It is making sense of what your faith holds true in a way that can be held to be true by the whole community as it comes up against obstacles or teachings or systems of belief, or an unbelieving community, social community and its practices. The first 400 years of Christendom were precisely this, how to talk about and discuss Christ in the Hellenistic world. That is, what can and what cannot be said about him. Systematic theology is therefore a theology that has universal application 
as historical statements of struggle and ongoing dialogue for answering the problem of living out faith in the world. It is enshrouded within a veil of historical social context, the words, the media, the aesthetic forms of those in history from within a shared social and cultural context among whom a struggle exists for answering one's faith. What has happened over time is that it has been somewhat distanced from its historical social context. Contextualization is, in a nutshell, the theological development of the church within a culture as they respond to their world from the standpoint of faith. Indeed, that is what happened during the Reformation. But before that, it's, it seems pretty flimsy or fragile to say that the theological development of the church within a culture as they respond to their world around them from the standpoint of faith. It seems fragile because it demands complete trust in the Holy Spirit working in that culture. God is in control and he has promised us that his word will not return to him void. As it did not for Luther when he was confessing Christ during the Reformation. Luther and the Reformers saw that the Word of God was not addressing the social context of the world in which they lived. The practical words of Luther in his commentaries and in and his redactions of the small and large catechisms, small called articles, reflect a praxis-oriented approach to understanding and implementing the teaching of Scripture within his own social context. Making the church the people's church brought theology into the world of the community of faith once again. And for me, Luther was not only the, the summa theologus, how do you say that? I don't know. The highest theologian. But he was only a good theologian because he was an excellent anthropologist. He knew his people backward and forward. And he knew how to apply the word and answer the questions of the people that they were not asking. So let's revisit those examples that I gave before in contextualizing viewpoint. Let's see if we can apply some of this. Example one, burning off the fields. I recognized the social context as distinct from my own, and I had seen gold and silver processed, but I knew that most of them had not. Using the meaningful experience of purifying as getting rid of unwanted or unproductive elements that contaminate what is desired, I saw a similar experience in the social context when they burned the sugarcane field. We were able to communicate the meaning of the experience by changing the sign from gold to sugarcane and effectively communicate what St. Peter and Jesus were talking about. In example number two, the second commandment, the second commandment talks about using God's name in vain, that is, for calling on him where he is not found, such as witchcraft, swearing, etc. Well, obviously, what the second commandment explanation as witchcraft was not seen as codified witchcraft for the people. Just merely saying witchcraft in teaching to what I could culturally consider as witchcraft was not considered witchcraft within their codified terminology of the people. How could I have spelled it out any differently? 
My problem was I didn't know or unpack what was occult or witchcraft material for these people. What was the demonic realm for them? What constituted that codified phrase demonic or witchcraft? I did not specify or ask them what these practices were, nor did I venture to unpack the elements of meanings of this codification for me, which in our society, witchcraft most likely is reduced to superstition. What were the activities in their lives that they did which might be called demonic and from which they needed to flee? I was dealing with words and concepts of their meaning from within my own social context. I did not know their social context of what for them might constitute witchcraft or simply a way of ascertaining the unknown. In fact, the whole educational format of the small catechism with questions and answers and occasional vignettes is codified way of teaching and came out of a need in the social context of the United States at around the turn of the century when neoliberalism doubted the historicity and errancy of scripture. The extended explanations in the small catechism most likely written because of theological reasons as it portrays a mini systematics look in, 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 instead of a guide for Christian living with real life situations Plus, the small catechism was written in the social context of the LCMS for families who were already Christian, perhaps second or third generation. It was not an evangelistic tool written with the purpose of evangelism. This led me to think about how the catechism could be written within an evangelistic context for first generation Lutheran Christians. We have to make the focus of catechetical instruction evangelistic in nature, one in which it actually is an Enchiridion or a handbook for Christian living in the context of the people where that living need take place. They had to write it. Sounds like didache, doesn't it? How could they possibly write their own material? To answer this question, let's adjust our focus slightly. If the small catechism explanations were written in the context of questions asked by the church in the United States, what questions from real-life situations might Panamanians, Guatemalans, Venezuelans have the need to be addressed in their Christian walk? Questions like, can I still be Panamanian and be Lutheran? Which was actually a question. This was related to participation in communion, not the nature of the substance of bread and wine, neither a theological debate, but the fact that all schools had priests celebrate communion as part of the graduation ceremony. To not take communion would be social suicide with those classmates with whom they had been since childhood. Could people in a rural areas go to visitations at the houses of departed people? Because at the houses of the departed, rosaries were spoken continuously. But by not going, they would break social solidarity with the mourners. So we had groups of people from within our community who went and prayed the rosary in solidarity with the people, though not confessing what the rosary was. Example three, the red bracelet in baptism. Why did I not baptize the child on that day? 
The red woolen thread signified a warding off of the evil eye. Children were the children wear these so that they are not given the evil eye. It is believed that the evil eye will make them sick and could even cause death or permanent bodily harm. There is a diversity of cures for the evil eye, but red woolen thread wards it off. Very old Middle Eastern belief dating back to the third millennium BC in which white and black wool and thread was used as a preventive. It came across North Africa into Spain and then into the New World. The woman was taking all protective measures available to her. Baptism, wooden thread, what else? Again, how was baptism seen? I interpreted the presence of the thread as a codification of her reliance and faith in it to, present, to prevent the evil eye. Why was baptism not sufficient against the evil eye? She may have received the teaching of what baptism was, be on the safe side, she decided to have an amulet as well. I had not thought to include God's powers in baptism as an exclusive and unique power that overcomes all powers. That he was a God jealous of all others claiming to be powerful and mighty, that only he could protect and save. I also missed the possibility of baptism as being interpreted as an amulet functioning apart from the promises of the word and faith and as magic. Example three, you're too cute. The color red was key here as it produced the way of talking about Christ. It is what my homiletics professor, Rev. Rossow, called a gospel handle in his book, Gospel Handles, Finding New Connections in Biblical Texts. It used the lexical reference of red and took it out of the social context of witchcraft, put new meaning on it that related to an opening to present the gospel message of Christ. I was not identifying the red wool with Christ, but Christ's blood as redefining the signified object. Example four, I do believe in elves. I do, I do, I do. Social contexts have a diversity of levels of the spiritual world. In the United States, we do not consider Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny to be spirits. They do not fall within a domain of meaning that we have created for them in the spirit world. We do not have a category for elf, leprechaun, sprite, or other than mythological. We do not attribute malevolent spiritual power with them, but they are not the same as Santa Claus. The Mayan Indian, however, considered the sprite to be a real-life spirit-type creature. I would need to watch this designation and how it played out in further discussions, which it didn't, in order to ascertain if there was some significant spiritual dimension that conflicted with the gospel. I mean, we have no apparent problem with Santa Claus as a mythological creature. Or is he? Sample six. Goodness snakes a life. The whole process of understanding this practical example typifies the process of theological thought that I am espousing, namely, these Christian gentlemen now have to give answer of the faith in front of the situation. What if I stepped in and said, no such things as snakes coming off of incense burners, they're made of clay. This would have missed the point completely. Whether the event actually happened or was a cultural metaphor, for something else. They were perplexed 
and that is all that mattered. If their faith were in a critical situation, it would have been failure for me to spoon-feed them with some theological answer. This real-life situation saw the need to console the consciences of those who were bothered by demonic powers, if not physically, then psychologically. Together we worked on a ritual that was basically a service in which they publicly confessed their faith facing the East and reaffirming the power through Christ and his protection, and then facing West, denouncing satanic power, and then breaking up and burying the objects of the past, saying something like, I now put to rest the gods of old, those that held power over me, those that no longer control my life as a redeemed child of God. It is the experience and praxis that makes this powerful. It's the experience and praxis as they wrote this that makes it powerful. Not the mere knowledge of the doctrine of baptism, but the acting out of the doctrine of baptism, the praxis in the social setting. This was not made mandatory for any who left the Roman Catholic Church or were shamans. It was performed on a conscious need based, conscience need basis. Example six, without words. The dilemma, by saying nothing, he most likely would be tortured and killed by his captors. But by announcing his innocence in newspaper would have endangered everyone in the congregation who may also be suspect or thereafter be suspect for making such a statement. The man was found a few days later in a gully, tortured and wearing sandals or chancletas, which were a sign that he had been politically assassinated. And under normal circumstances, the shoes would have been sent home to the family as a sign that he would not be returning. For some things, you are never prepared, or simply lack preparation. Theological formation, <coughs> theological formation, reflecting on what I have said, I would like to offer some guiding principles in theological formation, which I believe would hold true for any culture, but particularly for the men and women in Latin American context. In keeping with the overall theoretical tone we have been discussing, I believe that effective education is a dialogical process in which what is known and experienced by one person is either known and confirmed by another or is different. By being different, the other person needs to organize or reorganize his or her perspective and thought in accordance with what someone else has experienced, thereby expanding not only possible evaluation of what was shared and believed, but also acting on what is shared and believed. The best form of education is one based on praxis, in interaction of faith in the real world. That sets the stage for reflection. Particularly in theological formation, we are not concerned merely with memorizing doctrine and teaching as static academic dictum or monoliths. Formation is a forming it is a molding of engaging faith in the lives of real people with real questions, seeking to understand their actions and those of the world around them from a faith that has been given through the working of the Holy Spirit in Scripture. 
This happened in each of the cases previously illustrated. I had to engage my faith and share my experiences and, in return, listen to and engage in the faith of others. Erroneous or distorted as it may have seemed to me, in order to achieve a communication that would be understood and practiced. This is an ongoing process all life, all throughout all of life. So I have some points. First of all, in the formation of leadership, theological formation should be ongoing. You cannot know enough theology. You need to see faith in action, reflected on, talked about, continually. Second, theological formation cannot be spoon-fed. I have shown that education takes place in healthy, constant, time-consuming dialogue. Spoon-fed education assumes that what is being taught is objective without a social context in which it has developed. This is not to say that it is or is not true. My point is that it loses the real-life social context in which the problem or issue has been worked out. Third, a good part of the theological education should be the unpacking or deconstruction of the surrounding social context in which decisions, doctrines, and theology have been formed in the past, so that both student and teacher grow in understanding how particular doctrine or teaching was formed in the social context, and so that an adequate answer can be given in today's society or in whatever social context it may be. Fourth, we have to lose the dichotomy of teacher versus student. This dichotomy feeds spoon-fed model of education in which what is learned is disassociated as neutral to all social contexts and places the teacher as the fountain of all knowledge. The teacher may know the truths and theology that has come down to the present social setting throughout history. He should unfold the context in real life situations so that through active discussion, the student can experience these situations in his life. This is problematizing the issue. This places student and teacher on the same level, both as learners. <clears throat> the teacher learns about social context, ministry, problems, issues of the student. The student is introduced to how the church has handled these situations throughout history. Fifth, theology is not redone in every social setting, nor does it mean a reinventing of the wheel. If we are celebrating diversity in ethnicity and community, we must be true to life and celebrate the diversity of social issues and contexts in which each people and culture bring a contribution to the ongoing history of the church. This can easily be, by, be done by embracing and appreciating the answers that the historic church has had to give for its faith in real life situations and knowing that the leader in formation is a continuance of this theological thought in their social context. Sixth, the formation needs to be done proactively. Issues come from the witness and practice of the church and addressed in real life functional answers. It is praxis oriented. It begins with the question of how to give effective witness of the gospel to people within my context confronted by an issue. That is to say, problematizing, questioning the issue from the standpoint of giving witness to solve that issue. This is the beginning of theological formation, identifying the ills and issues in one social context 
Wrestling with them and how to address them brings the student into a relationship with Scripture as well as the historic answers of the church. Seventh, both student and teacher, if we can call them that, must have confidence in each other so that they can enrich each other's world by deconstructing codified communication, taking nothing for granted as far as assuming the meaning of anything that goes on in the social context. Deep questions and honesty must be shown as among brothers in Christ. Eighth, decisions about ministry, the structure of the church, and other things relating to the witness of the gospel in the social context should be made by the people of that social context. The teacher should be the consultant and guide by going back to scripture and the answers of the church. This unfolds a body of wealth, a wealthy body of information for those people in formation. This means that the teacher must trust the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the person under formation, that the decisions made will ultimately be done under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Ninth, in all of this, you are forming a community of the faithful, not an institution. Ministry and witness should be the reason for the organization of the congregation, the formation of the leader, all of the activities in the congregation. You are not making a club of the faithful. I will stop at nine. For those who think stopping at nine is like dropping only one shoe and listening for the other, you will probably feel uncomfortable. But there is no tenth point, so we'll stop at nine. I will stop here. I think I have exhausted, if not the topic, then the ears of my listeners. Thank you for this invitation to share with you. I hope that you found it enlightening or at least entertaining. Thank you. <laughs>